This is my 60-second summary of a conversation with a state senator, in this case Senator Andrew Zwicker representing the 16th District of New Jersey. He describes his job primarily as responding to and supporting his constituents, of course, but from a technical perspective, he is there to write laws and serve on the committees that create laws that ultimately go in front of a governor to get approved or rejected. He talks about his job as really going to the voting sessions once a month and serving on committees. These committees, which can be created by, depending on who's in charge of the House, committees can be changed, expanded. There are some who've been there for hundreds of years and others that get created depending on the times and and what's going on in the world. He talks about the long and arduous process of creating legislation and that there are many, many checks and balances and votes and input before things ultimately go in front of the governor and become state law. Please listen more to the rest of this interview to learn more about what a senator does for you. Welcome to 60 Second Democracy. I am here today with Senator Andrew Zwicker from the 16th District of New Jersey. Andrew is a scientist and educator at Princeton University's Plasma Physics Laboratory and uh, a man of of many interests. And I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today. Really appreciate you joining. And a special shout out to Janice, Mayor of Clinton, for getting us connected as well. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Anything for a fellow Andrew uh, Andrews of the World Unite, but happy to be on on the show and looking forward to our conversation. So just a reminder, a little bit of background. Uh, I created this podcast uh, based on the hypothesis that myself, like many other voters out there, really don't have a, a comprehensive or or even less comprehensive understanding of what a lot of our public servants and elected officials actually do for a living and and really how both local and, and national governments work. So that is the that is the the goal here. And you know, definitely want to hear about some of your personal experiences throughout this uh as well. And and really excited as I, I know you've you've had a few different roles in, in public service. But I would love to start with uh just a, a basic question of how did you end up getting into public service? What uh inspired you either positively or, or negatively to uh, get involved? You know, it's a basic question with a, a long history, and I'll try to sum it up as best I can. Um, I had a transformative moment in the early 90s that changed the course of my life. Even though I didn't enter into public service until 2015, it turns out that I was on a path that I wasn't even aware that I was on starting in the early 90s. So what happened was I come right out of graduate school and I got a PhD in physics. I was uh, working on fusion energy and I still work, as you mentioned in the introduction for the Princeton Plasma Physics Laboratory, which is the United States's national laboratory for the development of fusion, the ultimate source of clean electricity which is unlimited and clean and no greenhouse gases and perfectly safe and doesn't care if the wind is blowing or the sun is shining. It's a form of nuclear energy that we find in the core of our sun and all the stars, uh, but without any of the issues that we know that nuclear fission has, it's it's fusion. Um, 
but I came right out of graduate school back in the early 90s and was asked to mentor a young high school student for the summer because we had a summer internship program. And that young person uh, changed my life in so many good ways because it turns out when you help a young person, it's what an amazing feeling if you're a teacher or you're a mentor or however you may be doing that. And over the course of that summer, I helped change this young person's life, uh, but she was changing mine. Uh, but the person who asked me to mentor her was the, at that point, the deputy director of the Princeton Plaza Physics Laboratory, a person named Rush Holt. And three, four, five years after that time, and I talked to him and we talked about education and young people and science education, all those things. And I devoted my professional career for decades to science education and ensuring that the pathways into science are available to everybody, including a variety of different communities that are often excluded or marginalized from, from the world of science and engineering. But Rush, in the late 90s, left the laboratory because he became the second physicist ever elected to the United States Congress. And there have been three in the history of our country. Um, there's been Vern Ehlers from Michigan, a Republican, Rush Holt, a Democrat from New Jersey, and the only one in Congress right now, Bill Foster, a Democrat from Illinois. And I love the fact that it's clear that it's also, it's not a partisan issue. There's been a Republican, there's been Democrats. Science knows no political boundaries and no political party in, or shouldn't in its idealistic sense. Anyway, fast forward 16 years later and Congressman Holt, after eight terms in Congress, announces that he's going to retire. And the person who replaced him who was now my boss at the Plaza Physics Laboratory, a Republican, came to me and said, uh, are you going to run for Congress to replace Rush? And anybody who asks you a question out of the blue of, are you going to run for Congress? If your first reaction isn't to laugh and go, are you kidding me? Then I worry about your own sanity. And so I said, no, I'm not going to be running for Congress. But then something weird happened. Uh, I don't think I mentioned it to my wife, right? Like the next day I'm in the hallway and someone goes, you can run for Congress. And so now I'm getting these weird messages of like, well, I may not see myself as an elected official, but other people see me that way. And this is the Obama administration. And I was deeply frustrated in uh, congressional appropriations for basic R&D and frustrated because I didn't feel like when, in my case, in fusion, the development of fusion, which is federally funded, when there were good results, we didn't see funding go up, bad results go down, whatever it might be. It just seemed to be haphazard. And so um, I went and talked to my wife and my kids and decided to take a risk that I could complain or try to do something. And so I did run for United States Congress in 2014. Um, I had never run for any elected office before. But uh, and I entered the Democratic primary and it, the, the 12th congressional district in New Jersey is a pretty heavily Democratic district. So the winner of the primary was pretty much guaranteed to win the general election. I came in last, I had an amazing experience and I lost less worse than anyone ever imagined. 
because I was a scientist, because a variety of different people would say to me, here's all the time I was knocking on doors. Um, oh, that's interesting. You're a scientist. I'll, I'll check you out. I'm not sure I'll vote for you, but I'm willing to at least find out more about your beliefs and your values and your priorities. Uh, so the next year, I didn't run for Congress to run the New Jersey State Legislature. I ran for Congress to make a difference. But the next year, a couple of people came to me uh, and said, hey, we were watching and we have this idea of, you know, would you be willing to run for the New Jersey legislature in the lower house, the General Assembly? One of the people who came to me was someone I knew from the Plasma Physics Laboratory, who was a computer modeler, PhD computer modeler, who was modeling plasmas and fusion energy systems and decided she was going to model people's behavior and voting behavior and apply all of her physics skills and computer skills to voter modeling and voter behavior. And she's like, I've modeled the 16th legislative district in New Jersey. And, you know, no Democrats ever want it. And I'm a Democrat. Um, but, you know, you'd also be the first physicist to, to ever uh, be elected if you were so successful. Would you willing to give it a try? And so I said to myself, okay, we've done the theory. We've run the model. Now we have to run the experiment. I've got to get out there and knock on doors and do all those sort of things. Um, and so I did it. I jumped in and 34,000 people approximately voted in 2015 and I won by 78 votes. And from there, um, you know, I, I, I served three terms, two-year terms in the General Assembly. And in 2021, there was an opening in the state Senate. And so I've moved up to the state Senate. I've won by bigger margins. That was 0.24%, those 78 votes uh, way back when. I've won by whopping landslides of like two and three percent, um, but uh, that's been sort of my my journey. I won because I was a scientist. I do my best to, you know, use data and evidence to make decisions, um, and I go back and forth between the world of science and the world of politics every single day. That's great. That is. Uh... It makes sense now how entwined the uh, physics and and your political career have become. That's very interesting. Um, I I I hope we'll have time to kind of cover everything we want on both. But if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to start for a minute a little bit with what was that first job all about? What what does it mean to be in the state assembly? What did you do? You know what what does one do there? Yeah. <laughs> You know, I have the privilege of representing about 225,000 people approximately in my district. And whether I'm in the assembly or the, the Senate, the job is always the same. Uh, the number one thing to do is help the 225,000 people that I represent uh, with whatever they may need, cutting through red tape, getting a, you know, a veteran who needs help getting a health benefit. Um, a person who needs help at motor vehicles. Uh, sometimes there are small little things. Someone came to us whose cell phone was uh, about to be turned off because she had lost her job in the middle of COVID. And we helped get her into a grant program to cover that cell phone bill. And six months later, we got a phone call out of the blue and said, hey, that was the one single thing I needed to get my life back on track. 
And once that pressure was gone, because I needed my cell phone to help me try to get a job. Once that was back on track, and then I got a job, and then I could pay my rent and my cell phone. And it took that one little thing for us was a huge thing for her. That's the, the, the most important thing that any state legislator would ever do in, in any state. Uh, and something that, you know, uh, is such a pleasure to do. And then uh, the rest of it is, of course, you know, I serve on committees, just like at the congressional level. Um, and I write laws and work to get those through the legislature into the governor's desk on a variety of different topics. And it's a part-time job. Uh, you know, the rest of the time I continue to do what I can to push fusion energy towards a reality. And so just to go back to that assembly role a little bit, what kind of hours does one put in doing that job? You know, how, how many, how many bills does one write or, or vote on in a, in a year, let's say? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I have two full-time jobs because even though uh, it's considered a part-time job to be in the legislature, it's not. So, uh, you know, there's only so many hours in the day. And so I'm on the phone or email uh, constantly besides meetings. We meet typically on Mondays and Thursdays only uh, in the New Jersey legislature year round, though there's a break for the summer typically, and often there's sometimes a fall break. Uh, and, you know, but it's a two-year session. And so committees, we have a voting session typically once a month, and then committee hearings on either a Monday or a Thursday, not every Monday and Thursday. In the state Senate, I serve on four committees, budget, veterans affairs, um, higher education, and labor. And so typically in a week, I might have two committee hearings, uh, one on a Monday, one on a Thursday, sometimes on the same day, just one day that I'm down there. Uh, and then perhaps towards the end of the month, I'll have a voting session. And that voting session, we might have 30 bills that we are going to discuss. And in between, I'm writing my own bill. So I have written uh, several hundred bills over the course of my career but I might be advocating for just one or two high priority ones at any given moment in time. So just to where some of these jobs are merging a little bit and maybe that, that makes, makes sense. Uh, so as somebody's role, if they're on the assembly, you are both in charge of voting on bills as well as drafting bills yourself. And in terms of how you go about drafting bills. Could you explain a little bit? Like you you arrive, you're on this job, you're on some committees. How do you how do you proceed from there? How do you how do you know where you want to go? Yeah. So the so the first bill I, I use the first bill I ever wrote, um, which is called the New Voter Empowerment Act, as an example. And what this says is that a 17-year-old could vote in a New Jersey primary, as long as they're 18 years old by the time the general election comes around. And the reason why I wrote this is other states have done this and uh, want young people to vote. One of the things that motiv motivated me to get into public service was you know, my own kids and young people feeling as if they had no voice. So the legal voting age is 18 for a general election and it's in our constitution, but in the primaries, we could try to actually make some changes here. So I had read about other states doing this and I said, I wanna do this in New Jersey as well. So then I make a phone call to the 
Office of New Jersey Office of Legislative Services, which is a large nonpartisan organization created by the legislature to write bills without any partisanship at all. So whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, whether you're a conservative or a progressive, doesn't matter. The Office of Legislative Services, when they hear from a member, is mandated to then write a bill that that member would like to see. So I called them up and said, this is my idea. How can we turn this into the language of a piece of legislation, a bill, and ensure that it meets New Jersey constitutional requirements, other regulatory statutory requirements? That's their job. They then spend the time to do the research, send me a draft. I have time to review it, make sure they capture what I'm trying to do correctly. If all of that works, then I introduce the bill into the legislature. It gets a number. If it's an assembly bill, it could be A, 2014, whatever. If it's a Senate bill, it's S with a number associated with it. And that triggers then the legislative process. It gets assigned to a committee by the leadership of the respective houses. It then gets uh, scheduled for a committee hearing, which is a public hearing. Anyone can come and speak in favor or against the bill. If it's voted out with a majority of the committee members voting in favor of it, it can it then moves for consideration for the full assembly or the full Senate to vote on that particular bill. Both houses have to then agree to on the exact language down to the last comma has to be agreed upon. If they do and both houses vote a majority, a simple majority to uh, voted out. It goes to the governor's desk where he has the final say. In this particular bill, um, this was done in the last year of the Governor Chris Christie administration. So it's my my first term. His he's getting ready to term limit out. He actually vetoed the bill, uh, said it was potentially unconstitutional. I knew that wasn't true uh, because I had done the research beforehand, but I. The, the governor's veto was absolute. And so I've since introduced it into the you know, legislature again with, under the next governor, Governor Phil Murphy. And I've been working to now get it through both houses and onto Governor Murphy's desk. But that's, that's how you take any idea, whether it comes from a constituent coming to me and saying, hey, I've seen a problem. And often constituents are my best resources to one of my colleagues at Princeton, uh, who points something out uh, to, you know, just things that I think are really important to solve. And th this is fascinating, by the way. And just as an example, so how long ago did you first, you said this was the very first bill you started during your first term as an assembly member, and now Correct. you are still working on it as Correct. a senator. Correct. Wow. So that was 2017, right? I, I entered the legislature in 2016. I think we uh, just by memory, I think we, it's a two-year term. I think we got it onto the governor's desk in 2017. Uh, he vetoed it at some point after that. And so for the last six years, approximately, right, since 2023, uh, I've been working to get it through. I've What's happened is I've gotten an agreement in one house. Let's say I got it through the assembly when I was in the assembly but I didn't have an agreement to get it through the Senate, right? Uh, or vice versa now that I'm in the Senate. So you've got to work both houses, committee chairs, you get an agreement for committee chairs to post your bill because there's only so many bills that they can hear 
at, at any given time in a committee, and there's only so many committee hearings in a year. So priorities can change. Uh, so there's a lot of jockeying back and forth behind the scenes to get a bill to across the finish line. And of course, finally, you know, I did it that first time, but I didn't have an agreement with the governor's office. So, uh, you know, all that has to fall into, into place and then you can get your bill done and then it becomes law of the land for 9 million people. I guess in some ways it's probably good that it's appropriately difficult to, to get a, yeah. get something passed into law. So just, just to clarify that for a moment. So you normally have resources you can go to, sorry, you mentioned the, uh, who are the folks once again that help you Office write the law? Office of Legislative Services. Office of Legislative Services. Um, so that's sort of the the hard the the hard side of the of, of getting this done, right? Like you you go to them, you get the bill written, and then as you're working through, it sounds like there's a, a bunch of soft work that you have to do to get anything passed. So you said you have to work both houses, and then. Normally, if you want to get something done, and you said the folks who basically decide what even goes up in the committee meeting, if you really want to get something done, does that mean you also need to have somewhat of a, a personal relationship or a touch point with whoever is the governor at the time? Because ultimately, even if things pass, you said they they get in front of that person, and that person has the the veto power over anything that comes through legislatively. Anything, and New Jersey has some people would argue the most powerful governor in the country. But yeah, and so, so not only that, like in using this example of the 17-year-olds voting in primaries, the new voter empowerment act, I call it. I also reached out to both the young Democrats and young Republicans of New Jersey, because those exist, those both organizations exist, and they worked on a bipartisan basis to create a grassroots campaign to reach out to my colleagues in the legislature across the state because they live in towns, the young Dems, young Republicans have members who live in towns across the state to do outreach to the governor. So I'm also working with a variety of different stakeholders outside of the legislature to build a critical momentum to say, hey, it's not just Senator Zwicker who wants to see this done. It's the people of New Jersey who want to see this done. All of that has to happen regardless of what the bill is, what the topic is, um, for anything you would like to get done. And process-wise, you know, you mentioned folks can come to you, you're writing bills pretty often. You know, how many things are getting passed per, per year? And is it about even between teams in terms of Democrats and Republicans, or does that depend on the governor? But yeah, just just to start there, I guess how many how many things actually get passed into legislation in a given year, so, roughly? Yeah, I don't have the the numbers exactly in front of me, but but you know, in the order of five thousand, six thousand bills are introduced every single session, something like that, and of that, a couple hundred uh, are passed roughly. So it's a very small percentage of bills that are introduced that are actually. Um, make it all the way to the finish line and become law. 5%, uh, less than 10%, something like that. In terms of the partisanship, no, it's not equal at all. The majority party controls who is the chair of any committee. So the majority party decides, number one, who's the leader of each house, who's the Senate president, 
who's the speaker of the general assembly. That person then the leader of each house decides which members are the chair of a committee. And it is exceedingly rare that that would cross party lines. And so if in New Jersey, Democrats control both houses of the legislature, it's a democratic speaker, a democratic Senate president, Democrat, Democratic members are chairing the variety of different committees. And we have a Democratic governor, currently Phil Murphy. The, the scenario I described before that happened in my case in 2017, it was democratically controlled houses, Senate and Assembly, but a Republican governor. So, so that's the dynamics that occurs. But the majority party has by far the largest number of bills that will make it through committees. But then in the case of 2017, as you mentioned, if you control both houses, but you same party is not in the, the in the governor's office, you know, then is it just really, I, I suppose, just highly dependent on the quality of the relationships with the governor or? Yeah, I was going to say, it's not the quality of the relationship. I mean, you want a good relationship across the aisle, no matter what the scenario is. That's just good politics. That's just good human nature. But it's not necessarily the, the personal relationship. It's the priorities of the governor. The governor has been elected by the people of New Jersey for, for a certain platform, for a certain set of values. Whether or not I, as an individual member of the legislature, whether those values line up or not, sometimes party is sufficient. Sometimes it's not, right? I don't agree with everything Governor Murphy, a Democrat, has done. I'm sure he doesn't agree with every bill that I've ever introduced. Same thing with Governor Christie, uh, who is a Republican governor. Uh, so it really depends upon, in the end, just like you see in Congress where the president uh, has final say on signing a particular bill, um, the governor has final say. So it's a short personal relationship, but really it's about priorities. And you may not know the answer to this, but is there a large variation between governors in terms of the amount of bills they sign? Like, are they, is it an equal priority for everyone to go through and, and be really engaged in that process? Or I guess, is, is there is there accountability there in some sense to the process? It's an interesting question. My, my assumption, and I don't know the specific answer, is that on average, the number of bills that a New Jersey governor signs into law probably doesn't change too much between a Republican and a, a Democrat, in part because the number of bills that make it to a governor's desk is a function of how many voting sessions we have and how many committee hearings we have. And if that doesn't change very much, regardless of which party may have the majority, then the number of bills that make it to a governor doesn't change very much. You may see, you know, if one party controls let's say the governorship and another party controls the House of Legislature, you might see more bills being vetoed, but not necessarily because if there's a good relationship between the governor and especially the two leaders of the House of the, the Houses, then you know that would mean that the leadership has worked with the governor's office to try to minimize how many are vetoed. No one wants to go through all this work and then have a governor veto veto a bill. And so that communication between the governor, the Senate president, 
and the speaker then becomes paramount to ensure that regardless of party, bills that are coming out are almost exclusively ones that are going to be signed. As like I said, we don't want to waste people's time doing something that has no chance of becoming law. Gotcha. So it sounds like more or less the system, because the meetings and the committees and everything are in place, produces roughly the same amount of, of bills from year to year. And do the are the committees fixed? Do they change often or do they have any different weighting power-wise between the committees? So committees are made by and decided by the leadership. Uh, so there are certain committees that have been around for decades, if not centuries, and they're probably would always be there. So for instance, the Judiciary Committee, or, you know, which helps to appoint judges, or the Budget Committee, which does exactly what it's supposed to do, which is help to decide the annual budget, are never going away. On the other hand, Back in 2017 or 2019, 2017, 2019, I don't remember exactly, uh, the Speaker of the House created a brand new committee for me, the Science Committee, given my background as a, a physicist. And, you know, my argument was so much of our New Jerseyans' daily lives now is tied to whether it is healthcare and advances there or the fact that we're online so much that having a committee focused on science and technology would be a really good thing. Uh, technology is driving a lot of where job growth is and economic growth. And the speaker agreed, and so he created a science committee, which still exists after I moved on to the state senate under a different uh, legislator chairing the committee. So it, it really depends. And then there's also special committees that might exist for only one session, again, at the uh, decision of the leadership of that particular house. And if someone introduces a bill that really doesn't fit into any existing committee, is that why something would be created? Or if somebody just identifies a need and says, we, we need people to start thinking about bills in this arena because it hasn't. Yeah. It could go either way, right? There's certainly sometimes you get a bill in a committee where you scratch your head and go, huh, I wonder why it's in this committee. And the answer could be, is it just didn't really fit into any other committee? Uh, and if that happened enough, you could go, oh, okay, we really do. For example, uh, there was uh, for years the Agriculture Committee, and it's been renamed and its focus has changed to be the Agriculture and Food Insecurity Committee because it ties it together, right? And New Jersey is the Garden State, and we're still one of the largest exporters of a variety of different or agricultural products in the country. But food insecurity is such an enormous issue. And so the speaker decided to expand the scope of the agriculture committee to instead of create a new one, he just expanded one uh, to, to deal with that because we've seen a lot of bills around food insecurity. So it can go in a lot of different directions because times change and priorities change as well. That makes sense. And you had mentioned with your first bill going out and creating a, a bit of a grassroots coalition to get things done. How often is the voters' voice or efforts, how often are, are those efforts required to get something, you know, really moving along in terms of a, a bill or getting it passed? There are few bills that don't get people's input in these public hearings. I mean, certainly 
happens and sometimes we do these small in the weeds bills to fix something technically but it is you know most bills that go through committee in their public testimony section people from a variety of different either individuals or organizations come to talk in favor or to oppose a, a bill on top of that my office i'm sitting in my office right now my office will as bills go through this process will receive depends on the topic a from a handful to hundreds of emails and phone calls in support or opposition of a bill so i hear directly from my constituents about whether they you know are in favor disagree with a bill how they would like me to vote and i take all of that into consideration on how i vote and also so does everybody else and so that's part of the you call it the soft side of it but where the the voters voice is really being heard this may sound like a cynical question but you know people are always somebody has a campaign for anything right you get an email you get a text message that says hey reach out call your senator call this do you believe that most folks in in office really take that seriously the the volume of emails whether it's coming from constituents who are in their political party or not do you think that's really taken seriously i'll answer it for myself it's hard for me to to yeah know what's in the minds of other people um so there are times i'll receive hundreds of emails thousand emails on some controversial topics they're all written their forms right they're all exactly the same mm -hmm. i ask my staff to separate out the constituents the people i actually represent from somebody who got that text that said hey you know senator zwicker has a bill that we strongly oppose or, or we're in favor it doesn't matter right one click and you can write him and let you know you too strongly support or oppose that bill i give i'll be honest i do not i i note that but that's much different than if a constituent has done that and then even more different if a constituent has taken the time to write me clearly it's not just clicking on something but cares enough to write me an email or pick up the phone his or herself i'll give even more weight to that it's not to say that i'm ignoring my constituents at all but the volume you know same thing i tell my staff anyone who writes me contacts me deserves a response from me whether i agree with them or not but on these large volume ones we change that to be my constituents so that if someone out of state or out of the area i represent writes me if i can i'll write them back because i think that's important but there are times when we just the volume is too much, and so then we only are going to interact with our constituents. But I've noted I've received a thousand emails in support or against or some mixture, whatever the topic might be. Great, I appreciate I appreciate the detail there. So we we've spoken a lot about the job, what it takes to get things done so far. I'm wondering if you can explain the the difference between when you were in the assembly and the job you have now. What, what if any, are the differences? Why did you run for one office versus the other? And, and how can, how can we help people understand, you know, what the big differences are there? Yeah, I think there's, there's two big differences. 
One is it's half the number of senators than it is assembly people. So there's 80 members of the General Assembly in New Jersey, 40 state senators. So with half the number is both twice the responsibility and twice the decision-making, if you will. That's one. And then two, just like we see in Congress, in the United States Senate, the New Jersey Senate constitutionally has the power to what's called advise and consent on uh, cabinet positions and judgeships. So, uh, and the, the assembly does not. And so that means if the governor, regardless of party, uh, nominates a person to become the attorney general for the state, it is the Senate judiciary and then the full Senate who is providing consent on that. So it, it provides, there is more power, if you will, when it comes to having influence on who are the various leaders in the state when it comes to commissioner of environmental protection or the attorney general or the secretary of state, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that are the, I think, top level differences between the Senate and the assembly. Another one, uh, I'm a little flippant about this, but it does make a difference. Everyone has heard of a senator. Few people know what an assembly member is. Right? Most states don't call it an assembly member, they call it a representative. We call it the House of Representatives in Congress. There are state representatives. I once had a little kid, uh, I went to do a school visit and he came up to me totally like, it just eyes wide open and said, I have a question. What do you assemble? <laughs> and so it was adorable. Um, and I took him through quickly what it was. But, but you know, part of your first premise of your very first statement, it, you know, people want to know what the members of their government, their elected officials do on a day-to-day -day basis. If I introduce myself as Senator Andrews Wicker, everybody knows instantly. When I was Assemblyman Andrews Wicker, there was certainly some people who, what does that even mean? And how do you have an impact on my day-to-day -day life? Yeah, I think there are also a lot of people out there who maybe would say they understand about that in terms of your role as a senator who who perhaps do not. You you spoke about this a little bit briefly, and while we're talking about those privileges, are there any powers you have as a senator that you think are are sort of surprising or perhaps excessive? Well, so the one that is somewhat controversial in New Jersey that a senator has, a state senator has, is something called senatorial courtesy. And it's an unwritten rule, so it's not found in any statute, not in the Constitution. And what it says is that if the governor nominates somebody, I mentioned you can nominate the attorney general, you could nominate uh, a judge, you could nominate someone to a commission, the film and television commission, the bridge commission, whatever it might be. But when a governor nominates someone for either a high profile or not a high profile position, and it needs Senate approval, then the hometown senator of that where that person lives has what's called courtesy. And what that translates into is without sign off of the 
hometown senator without that senatorial courtesy, then the nomination can't even go to committee. It's just completely frozen. So, you know, that has raised some level of controversy because while it on one hand allows me when I have senatorial courtesy, and I haven't had it often, but it has happened, when I have senatorial courtesy to have an extra level of vetting of a person, it also means that you know, I don't have to explain my reasoning at all. And so I could have an issue. I don't think this person is got the right background for the, the position, but I don't have to explain myself. And so, of course, that's led to some controversy. The flip side, right, is it means that that person needs to come to me or any of my colleagues in the Senate, and we need to sit down and really talk about why do you want to be a judge? Why are you qualified to be a judge? Um, you know, what's in your background, et cetera, that might be a concern here. And so it provides a real detailed level, opportunity for me to have a real detailed level. So, so there's, there are pluses and minuses to it, but it's certainly something that uh, some people have had real problems with and suggest that, you know, we need to get rid of. And, and on the flip side, uh, do you think there are any sort of powers or privileges that state senators should have that perhaps they don't? This could be in comparison with other states or, or just in our state in particular. That's an interesting question. I don't think so, right? I, I mean, I have the ability to put forth proposals that, if successful, become law for 9 million people in New Jersey. I have the ability to pick up the phone and cut through red tape for a constituent that needs help with some state agency. So, uh, you know, no, you know, I wish of course that every one of my proposals was instantly adopted and every governor of course thought it was the best proposal ever, but you know, I'm one of 120 legislators in New Jersey with different priorities. And it is important that it goes through the process slowly and deliberately. And so, no, I don't, I don't think there's, there's anything else um, that I don't already have the immense privilege of doing. I, I appreciate that answer. You, you just mentioned something that sparked another question. You know, with the, with the volume of bills out there and the committees that exist, is there a lot of coordination throughout this process in terms of going out there and saying, hey, your bill looks like my bill, or if we combine it with this other bill and put this together, we could bring all of our coalitions together to 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 make this thing happen. How how much of the job is that sort of consolidation and discovery and, and integration? Yeah, absolutely. We merge bills all the time. So uh, I, I'm trying to think of a good, good example, but regardless, where, hey, you know what? What the best bill, you had two great ideas in your bill, and you think I have two great ideas in my bill, right? So let's take those great ideas and merge them into a single bill. We'll sponsor it together. We'll share sponsorship and credit, et cetera. But that's the bill we want to put forth. Because, and that happens all the time. So I mentioned before, there are five, 6,000 uh, bills that might be introduced in a system. Some of those are on the same idea, just different versions of it. And so exactly, 
then combine them down. So that happens quite a bit. And outside of the initial, I guess, ideation portion uh, of, of saying where you solicit input to get ideas for the bill, could we talk a little bit again about the the meeting where the public's involved? So they have an opportunity to come back once a bill has been created. Uh, can you just talk for a moment about, again, the what that meeting is called, when it happens, how people participate and, and get that input in? So uh, we're required to post a public notice when these meetings happen that have an agenda that say the meeting will happen at this date, at this time, in this room, in the State House down in Trenton. These are the bills that will be under consideration. So that notice goes out ahead of time. The day of, the chairperson of that committee calls the committee into session and is there a quorum of members present and then goes through, there may be some opening statements to set the stage for the day, but then goes through the bills one at a time. When a bill is ready for its hearing, the bill by, is read into the record by a staff member who's assigned to that committee. Like completely, read, even if it's long, read the whole thing? No, not the entire bill, a summary okay. of the bill, right? Because the bill, some bills are one page long, but some bills are hundreds of page, pages long. So it'll be bill S1246, the title of the bill, the quick summary of the bill is read into the record. Before that even happens, I guess I should have taken one step backwards. When a member of the public enters into the committee room, anybody can sit in the audience. If you want to speak, there's a form you fill out and anybody who wants to speak is allowed to speak. So you fill out a form with your name, if you are associated with any particular organization, yes, my name is Andrew Zwicker. I'm representing the Boys and Girls Club of New Jersey, and I'm here to speak in favor of Bill S. Blah, 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 blah. You're also given an option that says, do you just want to be read into the record that you're in favor or in opposition of this bill, or would you actually like to provide testimony? Some people come and say, I just want my name entered into the record of I'm in support or opposition, but I have no need to testify. Others say, I'm here on the record to say I'm in support or in opposition, and I would like to testify. At that point, then the chairperson reads all the ones, all the names and information of those who are there, but do not wish to testify. So those are entered into the record. And then now has a list of people who would like to now provide testimony. They're called up one at a time to provide that testimony. Typically you have three minutes or five minutes. That's up to the discretion of the person chairing the committee. You provide your testimony. Members of the committee are then given time to ask questions of that particular person. And then we move on to the uh, next person after that. So, um, that's, that's sort of the, how it happens all the time. If, uh, you know, some state audience and I'm on a committee and I go, Hey, you know what? I didn't, I forgot to ask a question of this person here. The chair can ask that person to come back and, and provide additional testimony and clarification. And then what's beautiful, I've seen this happen many times, a bill, for example, has gone up for a hearing and we've heard from the public. And they said, look, I support this bill, but I have real concerns about section two. 
in the bill, whatever it might be. And there's a real problem there. And the chair of the committee can go, and this has happened, huddled up with the committee members and said, you know what? I think this is absolutely right. We thought this bill was ready to go in front of the full Senate for a full vote. That's not true. There is something we need to fix. And so at that point, a couple of things can happen. A chair could say, you know what? I don't even want to vote on this out of committee. I think we need to pull it down, get this fixed, and then we'll come back to it. Other times we've said with agreement on the record, we're going to vote it out of committee because that's the next step. But we're not going to vote for it on the floor because we've identified an issue that needs to be corrected. And members will say, look, I'm voting for this to get it out of committee. We've identified this flaw. I'm just telling you right now, I would not support this bill if you don't make this change. So I want to be on the record there. And then off we go. And then, you know, every time the bill either dies because we can't, people can't get an agreement on that change or the change is made. And then you go, great. Now we all agree. It'll go to the full Senate in this case for, for a vote. That happens quite a bit. And are amendments usually only made between those two stages if something came up during the public hearing? Or even after that vote, can anybody just make changes before it goes into the, the next stage? Uh, so we're going to go into the weeds for a second. So when the bill is in front of us for a full vote of the entire Senate, no changes can be made. But there are a variety of ways that changes can be made before that happens. And there's also rules related to how much time has to pass before when a change is made to when the full Senate or Assembly can vote on a bill. So, for example, if we make a change the day of, we cannot vote on that bill that day unless there is what's called an emergency, meaning it's not a, you know, other extreme risk company. It means that we need the majority and the minority party, or we need two thirds of the members. And often that just means we need both parties to agree that this is of a high enough priority that we're gonna declare an emergency, we're gonna make an amendment, and then we're gonna vote on it on the same day. So that can happen. Otherwise, you must have time between voting on it and the amendments. Sometimes what happens is the bill is assigned, let's say, to the Labor Committee. And the chair of the Labor Committee says, no, I'm actually thinking of a real story right now. Uh, nope, this bill's not ready. I'm going to pull it down. And we're going to fix it. And then we'll put it back once it's fixed. Other times, what has happened is we said, we're going to vote it out, but we're going to set what's called second reference it to another committee. So it comes out of the Labor Committee, but it's got a problem. It gets second reference to the Budget Committee, and I happen to serve both of them so I can back it in that way. It's been second reference for purposes of amendment. So now we're on the record saying, okay, we're going to fix something. We're going to send it to the Budget Committee. That's where we'll make the amendment. The amendments will happen there. It'll get voted out of the Budget Committee, and then we'll wait a long enough period of time before we send it to the full floor. So we have these various mechanisms. The idea being before it goes to a full floor vote, and then of course, before it goes to the governor's office. 
Gotcha. And I'm I'm jumping back here for a moment, but when it's up in Trenton and the voting is going on, let's say, you know, average versus something quite controversial that has people stirred up, how many people will come to the public session? How many how many people can even fit in there? How many people are likely to come and, and how many people maybe typically speak uh, yeah. when a bill is going through? So we have a variety of different committee rooms. Some only hold a couple dozen people. Some can probably hold safely at least 100, uh, if not more. So certain committees tend to meet in rooms that are close to the number of people that we expect to show up. So for instance, when I was chairing the science committee and the assembly, we were in one of the smaller rooms because we didn't typically do a highly controversial bill around science and technology. When we were doing, uh, let's say, a bill around assisted suicide, uh, the health committee was doing that. And whether we should allow assist, physician-assisted suicide for terminally ill patients in New Jersey, that's a very controversial topic. There, the health committee was actually moved into our largest committee room, anticipating, and I was on that committee at that hearing, a large number of people showing up. When we were doing some of the COVID legislation. Can I ask a question about that last piece? So sure. when that bill went up, then, you know, if, if 100 people want to speak, then that's a that's quite a long meeting, I'm assuming, right? Oh, the meetings, I don't remember that one. But we've had four-hour committee hearings. We've had eight-hour committee hearings. Every member of the public have, who wishes to speak has the right to speak in front of a legislative committee. It may only be for two to three minutes, but if you have hundreds of people, then all wishing to speak, they're all gonna get a chance to be heard. So that can, you're right, it can take many hours. So in that case, I don't remember, but you're right. A single bill took several hours of testimony before it even was in front of the committee for a vote. And I cut you off. You were going to mention something about COVID or? Sure. You know, COVID was so controversial in some of the, especially around vaccines and mandates. In that case, there were, you know, many people inside the state house. And then there were people protesting outside of the state house uh, who were against mandates when it comes to COVID vaccines. So in that case, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people are, are around but not everybody is inside the state house. And then the state police were also controlling, you know, make sure there's not a fire hazard and other, you know, uh, just physical danger. There's just so many people surrounding a very controversial issue. But again, it doesn't matter what the topic might be. Everyone has a right and is always going to be heard no matter the topic. So while we're touching upon this, how much do national politics come into play in your role? And in, in, what, in what ways do they or, or don't they, I guess? That's interesting. So I guess I have to be political to answer that question some level, right? Because certainly during the Trump administration, I strongly opposed much of his proposals. Uh, you know, I'm, I'll just keep it around science for a second, right? I used to have to, under the Trump administration, go to protests to support just the scientific method, for example. 
And so in this case, national politics infused what we were doing because I would put forth, I only have jurisdiction around the boundaries of the state of New Jersey, uh, you know, a pro-science piece of legislation, for example. You know, when the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade with the Dobbs decision, I was part of a group of legislators who put forth a piece of legislation to what's called codify Roe v. Wade into New Jersey state statute to inoculate us from some of the deep partisanship that's happening in Washington, D.C. So uh, depending upon your political party and your priorities, uh, you, you know, may feel you have to do something. I may feel I have to do something going against what's happening in Congress or maybe in support of what's happening in Congress. So it really depends. I'll give you another example, less controversial, which is a group of Princeton professors came to me who are working on nuclear proliferation, the idea of making sure that our nuclear, nuclear arsenal is protected and also reduced. And you know, the movie Oppenheimer is out right now. And if you haven't seen it, it's an amazing, amazing movie, highly recommend it. But they came to me and said, hey, would I be willing to put a, res a state resolution forth about support of a international nuclear test ban treaty, trying to really reduce the, the threat of nuclear annihilation? And when I asked them why, they said, well, because if states are willing to do that, that puts upward pressure on the federal government to do that. We understand that if New Jersey puts forth a non-binding resolution, it's not going to do anything directly, but indirectly, it can have influence. And so I wrote up and put forth the resolution to do just that, and then was used for an upward pressure is ongoing negotiations with the Biden administration. That's interesting. And just to, to build on that, as in your role as a senator, what kind of contact do you have with other politicians who are working on the on the national level? And, and what does that interplay kind of look like between the, the state and you know, Congress, for instance, as you mentioned. So last Thursday, a week ago today, I did a town hall with the United States Senator Cory Booker on exactly these topics. How can we work and partner across transportation issues, housing issues, job issues between the federal and the state government? And so we brought a roundtable of business leaders together and talked about these and then Senator Booker and I, both in front in the round table and then privately and our staff are talking about what would this look like to forge shared priorities across federal and state jurisdictions. That happens all the time. I do the same thing with my local Congress member, Bonnie Watson Coleman, because much of our her congressional district in the House overlaps my legislative district in the state senate and so uh i do this quite a bit and then our staffs talk quite a bit as well um that that can be around trying to get federal dollars into my district or that can be about a particular legislative proposal that i have trying to get it done at the national level or vice versa one that they've suggested seeing if we can get it done at the state level again because um i believe it was tip o'neill former speaker of the house who said that states are laboratories of democracy and the idea being that if enough states do something 
that upward pressure on Congress and proving not just the upward pressure, but showing that it can work at a state level is the data that one would need to then work at the federal level and say, look, it works in New Jersey. It can work nationally. That's interesting. You, you mentioned something in there that caught my ear for a moment. How often are you working to get federal dollars for your district versus for the state of New Jersey writ large? And, and what's an example of that? Yeah, so the 250th anniversary of our country is coming up in just a few, two and a half years, a little bit less than two and a half years now, um, right? 250 years since the birth of our country. And big shout out to the area I represent and in central New Jersey because of the fact that the 10 crucial days of the Revolutionary War, the time we were losing against the Brits until these 10 crucial days and the Battle of Princeton and the Battle of Trenton happened, it changed the tide of the war and the birth of our entire country happened in, in, in and around the area that I'm fortunate enough to represent. So for example, I work with my federal partners to get money, federal money, to supplement state money that I'm going to go to get to restore our revolutionary war site history of our United States. Happened so much of it happened here. We think about the Boston Tea Party, or we think about Washington crossing the Delaware River, but the Battle of Princeton changed the course of, of the entire war and making sure that those historical areas and the visitor centers and the historical documents is something that needs to happen at both the federal and the, and the state level. And so I've been working hard with my federal representatives, not just the, at the Princeton battlefield, or the Trenton battlefield, or the Wallace House in Somerville, New Jersey, but across the state to make sure the dollars are flowing in as we get ready to celebrate the 250th anniversary of the birth of the country. That's really cool. And and you're right, I think more often we do hear about things that happened in Pennsylvania or other places, but uh, sounds like there are some, some holes to fill in in the narrative there, which is exciting. What is the most common misconception you encounter with the public about your, your role and perhaps what, what people expect from you? Hmm. So mine is probably pretty personal to me and because it's my background, which is people are surprised twofold. One, that a physicist, that a scientist has entered into public service, one. And two, you know, that cliche of, of, you know, physicist has no social skills and that I can get up in front of a group of people. I did it last night in front of a hundred people and, and not just talk like the, the cold nerd or not make eye contact, uh, but talk about my family, their family in a way that they can relate to and relate to me uh you know the biggest misconception is one of you know i'm i have no heart one of the first headlines uh about me was said something about you know the the cold the, what i thought was going to be like the cold analytical scientist has a heart which is nice but you know <laughs> hey, i'm just a person and so i got a great compliment last night which is along these lines is why I'm thinking about it. Someone got up 
during the Q&A at this town hall last night. And this was not with Senator Booker, this is just with me and my, my colleagues in the 16th district and said, basically what I'm saying right now, he goes, I've never met you before. And I appreciate that you're a scientist, but I appreciate even more you talking about your children and my children and support for public education. And he said he was just very surprised uh, by that. And that was the nicest thing that someone could possibly say to me. You know, in the end, hey, you're just a person. And, and that's it, right? I mean, all, all elected officials, whether you agree with their policies or, or not, I have yet to meet one that hasn't gotten into it for the right reason, to try to serve the public, put forth priorities that he or she agrees with and feel are really core to their values. I may not agree with what those priorities are, but I totally respect the fact that that's what motivates that person. Because it's not, public service is not easy, right? You're judged all the time. The moment you, you know, everyone loves you when you win an election, your first election, the moment you take a vote, well, you've, you know, pleased some people and you've, you've disappointed others. It's hard to, to be in that public eye all the time. And I have nothing but the enormous respect for all of my colleagues who have made this choice to enter in public office and, and, and to serve. And let's try, whether we agree or disagree, right? We're all in it trying to do the right thing. I love that. And you know, you had mentioned this earlier, so if I'm digging in deeper on this and it's unnecessary, but you had said when you tell people you're part of the state assembly, they have no idea what you do. But are there any misconceptions specifically about what you do as a state senator where people come and say, wait, can't you can't you do this for me or why can't you do this for me? And, and you say that's that's not the that's not the job I have or the role that I do. You know, sometimes people come to me with a passport issue and that's a simple thing. Right. But we just call up our in the federal offices to handle a, a passport issue. Or they come to me and say, there's a pothole uh, on my street, I need you to fix it. And then we make a phone call to the mayor of the town that I, I represent. So, you know, there's, there's federal issues and there's local issues that are, are important. And, you know, people in the end go, well, wait a minute, what do you do? Like, why are, why are you relevant to my day-to-day life? That's, I think, the biggest thing. People understand paying their taxes, uh, filling, you know, filling out an IRS form. They certainly understand and are frustrated if their garbage is not picked up on time or there's a pothole in their street. And so then it's like, well, why should I possibly care about the state legislature? But of course, you know, state laws uh, have day-to-day influence on everything. Then they're related to open space and protecting of overdevelopment or making sure the water that comes out of your tap is clean or the air you're breathing is is clean. It is incentivizing jobs in our state and ensuring that our motor vehicles, you know, you get to renew your driver's license that it's as efficient as possible. Or during COVID when so many people lost their jobs, that you had access to unemployment benefits as quickly as and efficiently as possible. So often it's one of, of jurisdictions and, and what I can and can't do. But the good news is that when someone comes to me, I'm going to try to solve their problem. Even if I don't have that ability, I'm going to reach out to my colleagues at different levels of government to make sure that that person's problem is solved as quickly as possible. And if if you know someone reached out to you and said I w- I want to be a senator or or something like that you know what 
what advice would you would you give them or or what specifically might you say about the the skills experiences or ambitions required to to do this job uh number one advice i give them is wait until i retire i don't need the competition uh <laughs> the serious advice would be that first of all get involved now meaning uh go volunteer at a state senator or state assembly member's office because we really, you know, would love your help. Uh, that's one. See what it's like from the inside. Uh, if it's an election season, go volunteer on a campaign for somebody who seems to have the same priorities and the same values that you have. Again, learning what it's like because it's not easy. Running a campaign for election, especially your first time, is very difficult. It's difficult every time. Uh, the day-to-day operations, uh, you know, it's not all glory. Uh, you know, it's the reality is that every day you're just trying to do these little things that make people's lives a little bit better. Uh, so by learning about the craft, the profession from the inside is probably the number one thing that you can do. As I tell students all the time, go get your degree also. I get science students saying, hey, I'm interested in, in doing this as well. I'm like, go do your science. It's easier to go from being a scientist to an elected official. The other way around is not particularly easy. So if you're going to undergraduate or you want to go to a graduate degree, get that done first. You can still volunteer, but get your schooling done first. Get yourself established first. And then talk to a lot of people because this is about talking and compromise. We all think, we have the right ideas, the best ideas, but the reality is you're going to compromise and give and take. And so talking to people, one of my great joys is the fact that I now have come outside of my research bubble and I meet people from every walk of life, every persuasion, every religion, race, creed, ethnicity, uh, sexuality, you name it people who I agree with and people who I don't agree with, people who love my priorities and people who really disagree fundamentally with my priorities. That is an amazing experience. And what's really key and is hard is to genuinely talk and listen to people who don't agree with me because there's probably a lot of common ground. And I, there are times when there's just people where there's no common ground. There's no possibility. It's not a conversation. It's just a competition to prove to the other person that, you know, they're right, I'm wrong, or, or vice versa. And that serves no one any good. It's a waste of time and energy. But that's the rarity. Most people are willing to talk to you and appreciate talking to you, especially when they disagree, because they want to know why or I want to know why, whatever it might be. Those are difficult conversations, uncomfortable conversations, but that's where the beautiful things happen. And I think we as a society, if I can now speak in that way, are too often going into our silos of whatever it is and our echo chambers and our social media echo chambers where we just get amplify what we already believe and then we go out into the real world and we're angry and we're pointing fingers at the other side there we demonize the other side and it's almost impossible to get anything done at that point 
And so I would really urge people to come out of their comfort zones and have conversations with people you don't agree with. Don't try to convince them you're right. You know, that's, 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 that's too often what conversations are. I'm just here to tell you I'm right. Here's my data. Here's my facts. Here's my reason. I'm right. You're wrong. And then the other person does the same thing. And at the end of that conversation, probably nothing changed. But if you go in listening and probing, and I will, you know, if I feel like the, the, the data, the evidence is not true, I will throw some of that out there just to say, hey, have you considered blank? But if I go in trying to convince someone that I'm right, they're wrong, it's probably not going to work. And it's probably just going to make people angry. So having those conversations, whether you're an elected official or not, especially now, especially when we're so divided as a country, is so critically important. If you can do that, then you're ready for elected office. I love that. And a question that popped in mind while you were bringing this up, I think many people have discussed the impact of social media and, you know, being surrounded by a bubble of your own opinions and the difficulty that creates in the division. How is that when it comes to the Senate and the assembly? Do you feel like that's having an impact on folks' ability who are public servants and in elected office to work across the aisle? Or do you think people who are in that job are, are focused and dedicated enough that that's not impacting their, their day-to-day work? The good news is that the deep divide in Washington, D.C., the enormous partisanship that has really broken, in my opinion, the, the Congress, which isn't to say that they haven't got some really important things done. The Inflation Reduction Act is transformative. The CHIPS Act in Science and Technology is transformative. Uh, you know, Congress has gotten some major, major things done. Infrastructure bill is transformative. But so much of what we read about is, is true and the partisanship there and the, it's just really gotten Congress to just get so many things just so difficult to have happen. The good news is in New Jersey, in the state house, that doesn't really happen. There's a little bit of that filtering down but there's so much hardship uh, that, and I don't want to, I don't want to wax poetically and not say we don't have significant disagreements, but the ability to, to talk almost a hundred percent is not gone. And we can still talk across the political aisles. There are a few people far, far in the extreme, but that's not the, that's the exception, not, the, not the rule. So it is, but it is filtering down, uh, you know, bad behavior is absolutely filtering down. And I am very worried about that. And I see that in New Jersey in the same way that we read about it in Washington. Uh, so civility is being pushed. So while it's better in the state house, I am very concerned about it moving forward because where, you know, what we see happening, whether it's in Washington or elsewhere, is now percolating through the country. So I, I have deep concerns, along with optimism, all at the same time. Yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm glad 
that you share some some optimism about that. It's good to hear that uh, at least at a state level, it's it's not become too much of a problem. But uh, I think I think it's a topic on people's minds for sure. Uh, so I guess to to wrap things up, and I want to be respectful of your time and, and appreciate all of it. You know, if you could have your sort of billboard message to the the folks of New Jersey or everyone out there, you know, what's what's something that you wanna wanna put out in the world these days? So I guess two things, right? One is it doesn't matter where your political beliefs are. We're at a very critical and difficult moment in our country's history. There's no doubt about it. It's playing out in so many different ways, fights at board of education meetings, gridlock in Washington. We can point fingers at social media, lots of different things. Each of those are a conversation. But in times of crisis, uh, and some, I think, correctly are arguing, you know, we are in a crisis in this country right now. People, it is our nature to come together and bridge divides, whether it is, you know, we're just days away from honoring those who were killed on 9-11. And that was a moment of horrific, horrific crisis when people just came together. Hurricanes and superstorms, we see it over and over again, where neighbors help neighbors and political divide that may separate us, brings us together. So I've seen over and over in terms of crisis, people putting aside all differences, political or other differences and coming together. That is our nature. And I think down in my heart that while we're at crisis right now in so many ways that we've been, we've had seen crises before and we've come out of it. And that I am optimistic, whether it's in Washington DC or New Jersey or anywhere else, I'm 100% optimistic that as difficult as this moment in our history is, that we will do what we've always done, which is come and figure out solutions and come out of the crisis that we're in. That's one. Two would be taking it much more personal and much more local, which is whether it's me or my colleagues in the legislature, we are here to serve the people we represent. And what people don't know often is a call to their state representative, state senator, state assembly member, can cut through red tape and other things and other problems that they didn't even know that we had that ability. And so it is a, you know, the, the billboard, if you will, is, you know, if you're stuck, call me and I will get on the phone and email me. I actually have uh, what do you call it? Uh, jar openers, those thin rubber things to help you open a jar. And it says stuck, call it Senator Andrews Wicker. Because uh, it was my mom who, who, where I got the idea from, she was all the time was saying, hey, Andrew, can you help me open up the pickle jar or whatever? And we, you know, get those little rubber, you, know, you hit it with a knife, you hit it on the side and you probably get that rubber thing. But as we age, you know, our, our hand strength gets less. And I had seen some other elected official do that. So I'm like, I'm going to do the same thing. And so I, I printed up a whole bunch of these, but it has my email and my telephone number on it too, uh, as a fun way, but it's just a, a way of like, hey, you know, call your state rep. There's a good chance that he or she can help out whatever issue that you may have. And if you're having that issue, chances are that there are 9 million other people in New Jersey who might be having that same issue. And so you may be helping yourself and helping many other people at the same time. I love it. What a great message. 
Well, I super appreciate uh, everything and, and all of your time. Oh, me... what a pleasure. Andrew, Andrews of the World Unite. And I really love the conversation. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another podcast of 60 Second Democracy. I hope that you enjoy what you're learning here. I know I'm learning a lot. Please leave comments, subscribe, and in general, let me know whether you're enjoying this, whether you have ideas for other ways to approach this, or other folks to interview to learn more about what's happening in your town or your democracy. Thank you so much for listening. You can find us on all platforms where podcasts are available. Thanks for listening.